Hello, you're listening to a Zen Studies Society podcast. To learn more about our community of Zen Buddhist practitioners, please visit zenstudies.org. Good afternoon. My heart is full of gratitude. It seems impossible that it was two and a half years ago that I was last here in person because the floorboards are the same. I know the swirls on these floors so well uh, from not quite 26 years of sitting at Hoenji, but 26 years with Roshi. Thank you. I am so grateful to each member of the Sangha and the collective who chanted for Florence for so many days. She was diagnosed in March 2021. So that's a lot of days of chanting. So thank you. And my Dharma siblings, I was going to say sisters and brothers, but I'm trying to be inclusive here, <laughs> who worked so hard to maintain this place, walking in Kinhen and seeing the pathways so maintained with the wood chips and all the flowering things and growing things creating the space for the amazing symphony we had this morning with, I needed to ask you, Mioran, what, it's like cicadas and cardinals and what else was warbling? Yeah, it was so, so beautiful this morning or whenever it was. Um, it all kind of merges. So I'm so grateful for your care and effort that make me be able to just kind of pop in. I used to live in Syracuse. I moved here in 93 to take a job at the university and left in 97. Um, and in that time, experienced a great deal of upheaval at one point in my life and was looking for clarity it was to be truth to be told. It was very bad wrongdoing on my part. I was having an affair. And um, this woman had moved to Syracuse to be with me. And here I was having the only affair I've ever had in my life. And I didn't know what to do. So I said, I'm going to get clear. So I stopped drinking and I stopped smoking marijuana. And I still wasn't clear about what to do. So I'm like, I have to get clear. I have to get clear. What should I do? I went to, there was a little bookstore in Westcott. Um, I don't know, Seven Rays, it's not still there, no. And I went and I was like, okay, I'm gonna buy books on meditation. So I bought a book about Vipassana, cause I'd heard of that and other things, uh, Zen. And the books kept saying like, don't do this alone. You're supposed to have a teacher. So I'm like, oh, all right. So find a teacher. So um, my neighbor down the street, uh, Riovo, um, 
said, go to your on campus, go to the chapel and they give lessons in meditation. And so I went and Saigyo was there and welcomed me in. And then um, very soon after they announced a um, meditation retreat. So he said to go to the meditation retreat, you have to go to um, the, the meditation hall, which was in Osho's Roshi's Roko Sherry's attic. And um, so I went and we sat and it was wonderful. And um, she said, so everybody who's staying for session, stay after. So, and I was there, first time I've been there, right? And she's like, so this, you know, like what brought you to doing session? I said, well, somebody I went to graduate school with said, um, a weekend meditation retreat is better than a year of therapy. So I wanna sign up. Um, so I did, and things haven't been the same since. I, I have my, I, somebody told me, like I, I, I was raised by born again Christians. Um, so I follow rules really well, except when I decide that they don't, aren't moral and just, and then I don't follow them. But I do things with great diligence. And so somebody said, get a journal and write down kind of things you're learning along the way and write down about Dokusan and write down about Teisho's. And so I started and, and I, I, I carry this book with me to every session and sometimes I remember to write and sometimes I don't. But from that very first day at Alverna Heights, I wrote, um, number one, people are deep hearted warm, these Buddhists that is. Sherry is incredibly warm. I really trust her. So here's the Dharma interview semi-record, and then I, I did that. So um, I had this amazing experience at, the, uh, at, at Alverna Heights. It was this um, Catholic retreat center, and it was you know super funky, which is great for me. I like funky. But there was the room where we had the Dokusan, and it was like on top of a hill, and there was a huge storm that night, and it was lightning and thunder. And I just remember standing there at one point, we had like a, you know, a break where you can stand up. And of course I was in like, not very comfortable body at, at, you know, doing this for the first time with such intensity. And I stood there and I remember feeling held up by the universe and the breath of the universe breathing me. So as I was trying to think about what to say here today, I, I went back to this to think, well, maybe there's like an archeology span I can, trace here and i thought well you know after i finished reading the whole thing on thursday i'm like actually the beginning is just i got it like right there that was it um and and so ever since i sat here i have felt at home i come here and i'm home and i come here and now i thought i was going to try not to cry but what the hell um this, these are my people who support me through everything and who welcome me. And uh, the Dharma sisters and brothers and siblings are the treasure here for me, along with um, my teacher. 
So today's talk, I'm kind of doing what a colleague of mine calls an archaeology of self. She, Yolanda Celia Ruiz, applies it to like people looking at their racial, uh, ethnic, linguistic, social class histories and how they create us and we're informed by them. But rather than archaeology of self, I want to do a little archaeology of the pedagogy of practice. In my job, I work on pedagogy and helping teachers develop their pedagogy. And by pedagogy, I don't mean just curriculum and instruction and teaching, but we mean like the power and the way knowledge circulates and ontology, like what things matter and how we are in the world and epistemology, how we come to know. So I thought maybe it's worth it to somebody besides me to look at my practice over time and see the roots of it um, and glimmers of how I got to this incredibly um, difficult year. It's been a, a year and a half of amazing challenges. The other thing I did is I, there's this bird called a jackdaw, it's like a blackbird. I think it's a British um, name, the jackdaw. And I used to teach teachers how to make jackdaws. They're collections of shiny objects if you're a bird. Um, if you're a teacher, they're collections of artifacts, primary source artifacts that you bring into the classroom and you share with the students and you, they do something with them. So I collected a lot of shiny objects today, but I have no idea what they'll add up to. And there may not be like a through thread of these little pieces. You may have to quilt it together yourself. Um, I was looking for the role of the teacher in lighting the path. And <clears throat> I'm going to skip to the end. This talk is about <clears throat> how to have the hold, love, embrace with a full encounter, that full encounter that we have an opportunity to do here and every moment that we have that opportunity. So kind of tracing, tracing that and tracing what I learned about accompaniment and attenuation, and I'll say more, they all add up to this um, kind of condition, experience, that for lack of better words, I am calling unconditional love. And being raised by evangelicals, we spent you know, enormous hours in church. Sunday morning, Sunday afternoon, Sunday evenings, Sunday evening before the evening service, Wednesday late afternoon, Wednesday evening. Um, many times we were in church listening to um, 
fire and brimstone, which I never really connected with. I remember saying to my dad one time, like, do you believe these stories? Like, like they're real? And he's like, yes, the word of God. So I was like, okay. Um, but it never connected with me. And so it's contrasting this idea of original sin, which is what I was baptized in with this other kind of thing that circulates called unconditional love has been this journey for me is, and, and how to do that. Um, I've had many opportunities to practice. Mostly the two faces I'm looking at here, my dear Florence, who not only was a partner and a co-mother and a colleague in all things academic and a comrade in all things political and a accompaniment in all things spiritual. In the last year of her life, we sat together every day. And that has never happened to me that I can sit at home. I'm, I'm not very good about sitting by myself. And so it's always been a long struggle. I come in here and I say, but we sat every day and I um, bathed in her ability to love unconditionally. We adopted three children from foster care at an older age and she was desperate to have children. And I was like, I'm too old, I'm too old, I'm too old. I don't wanna have kids, I don't wanna have kids, I don't wanna have kids. I wanna have kids. I'll die if I don't have kids, she said. And when she said, I'll die if I don't have kids, I'm like, okay, they have to be older and they have to be siblings and their mom can't be in prison and they have to be legally free for adoption. That was 10 years ago. Um, and the journey we took with them mm, through complex developmental trauma and the places their trauma triggers in me is something that I couldn't have navigated without this practice and without your teaching, Roshi. You held me and Kyoko. So I'm still in the gratitude part of the um, talk. I guess I don't have to worry about running out of things to say. Um, Maureen Stewart, this is one of the first books I think I read. I read um, Buddhism Plain and Simple, which I really liked. And I read other things and I, I picked up Subtle Sound, the Zen teachings of Maureen Stewart edited by Roko Sherry Shayat. Um, so those of you who don't know, Maureen was a teacher of Roshi's. And um, this book is so great. I, I have to reread it again, but I just found a few little bright, shiny objects. She says, everyday life is our religion. The trees, the flowers, the stones are our sangha. It's difficult to treat everyday life with the same respect that we accord each other during session. But this mind accompanies us wherever we are, whatever we're doing, in the midst of the most confusing turmoil, in the midst of heartache, in the midst of sickness, whatever it is, is our true practice. 
So in the spirit of thanking the everyday things that are our Sangha, I want to invite you to join with me on a uh, greetings and thanks to the natural world. And this requires you to do a little call and response. Um, so this is a beautiful piece that hangs in my house that we used to just use to have the kids read at Thanksgiving. But um, I realized one year, oh, it should just stay up all year. And it hangs in a prominent place. So thank you, Muran, for giving it to me and to all the ecological wisdom you bring here and indigenous. So the Onondaga people, I'm sure I don't need to say to you, are the people who've been walking this land for uncountable numbers of days. And they're also the, one of the only, if not the only, um, unceded territory, uh, sovereign, it's, they're a sovereign nation. And in the middle of this settler colonial uh, land that we are seeing crumble around us through our greed, anger, and delusion, the Onondaga people remind us how to walk, how we can walk on the earth. So when I go like this, you say greetings and thanks. Greetings and thanks to each other as people, to the earth mother of all, to the earth, mother of all. Thanks. To all the waters, waterfalls, and rain, rivers, and oceans, greetings and thanks. To all the fish life, greetings and thanks the grains and greens, beans and berries, as one we send thanks to plant foods, medicine herbs of the world and their keepers. Greetings. To all animals and their teachings. Greetings. The trees for shelter and shade, fruit and beauty. Greetings. To all birds, large and small, greetings. joyful greetings and thanks. And from the four directions, the four winds, thank you for purifying the air we breathe and giving us strength. The thunderers, our grandfathers in the sky, we hear your voices. And now the sun for the light of a new day and all the fires of life. To our oldest grandmother, the moon, leader of women all over the world and the stars for their mystery, beauty and guidance. Greetings. To our teachers from all times, reminding us of how to live in harmony. Greetings. And for all the gifts of creation, for all the love around us. Greetings. And for that which is forgotten, we remember, we end our words. Now our minds are one. So this past year, along with um, Florence being diagnosed with fourth stage metastatic lung cancer that had already gone to her brain before they even knew she had anything, 
um, she was skiing like two weeks before that. Uh, and the journey of trying to figure out what to do, which was a task. Um, we also had um, our oldest daughter moved home to be with her uh, birth mom. And it was in the middle of COVID and they, she and her boyfriend had been evicted from the apartment they'd been pretty, pretty much squatting in during COVID. And um, the night that Florence got out of the hospital on oxygen, it had been like the first, it was three weeks of the ER and it was, you know, just, I don't know, what are you doing every day? The phone rings and it's her and she's hysterical and she called the police and the police are there arresting her mother who's assaulted her and the other three children who were with the mom, who knew her three kids um, that the mom has custody of were being taken into foster care and the mom was in handcuffs in front of all of them and Kiana had nowhere to go. Um, and it was cancer and COVID. And so I paid for a motel and tried to find them a place to live with no success. Nobody would rent to them. Nobody, 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 nobody would rent to them. So she was unhoused and then it turns out she was unhoused and pregnant. And simultaneously, my 91 year old mother who had moved to East Hampton along with my sister, younger sister to buy a house together and live together. And the idea was they were, she was gonna take care of my mom until she died, my, my mom and dad. My dad died at the beginning of COVID. Um, I think we were like in Zoom. I feel like it was one of the first Zoom meetings and I'm like, here's my dad's body. Were you there? <laughs> it was a little weird. Um, so that was my first encounter with someone dying was my dad um, then. So my mom and my sister started getting worse and worse and worse together. And so it was total crisis, total, total crisis. The day that Florence entered hospice, which was a very hard thing for her to, to do, uh, very hard for her to say, there's no more attempt for me to get cured. Um, the day that Florence entered hospice, my sister texted me and said she had great news and she was moving to London. And um, she's sure I could find my mom a new place to live. Um, so I did. Um, in December, on December 8th, uh, we had our first grandson born. So welcoming new life while we're contemplating death. Um, it was a lot. It was a lot, a lot, a lot. And I turned to this book, which I highly recommend, The Five Invitations, uh, Discovering What Death Can Teach Us About Living Fully by Frank Ostaseski. He uh, was the co-founder of the San Francisco Zen Hospice Project. And I thought, okay, well, he has a whole bunch of stories in here about people dying, I better read up. So, cause I gotta know, you know, I gotta know. I always gotta know, right? Ask Roshi, gotta know, I have it bad. So I'm gonna read this book, but it turns out it was like, like the best book in the world to accompany me on this journey. And I read it out loud to Florence uh, the last few weeks of her life. And I found out that uh, Jikyo read the same book out loud to Jisho. 
Um, so he says, death comes to all. Whether we like that fact or not, it's certain to happen. Instead of avoiding this truth, it's useful to understand its meaning. Facing our own mortality can shift our priorities and values and profoundly change our views of reality. Sometimes adversity is what helps us to discover our strengths, just as dying can help us discover the beauty of life. There's a commitment in the act of accepting death that can help us move from tragedy to transformation. It mattered a lot to Florence when you met with Hiroshi and talked about a great spiritual journey and transformation. She held on to that. Suffering is suffering. We can't explain it, let alone control it, but we can meet it with compassion. We can meet it with presence, look at it directly, understand it, and perhaps find meaning in our relationship to it. Meaning isn't about assigning a cause. Meaning has a way of strengthening us. It builds resilience and enables us to confront suffering without running away. So I, I did not run away. I, um, I didn't run away once. Well, maybe I sometimes smoked a little too much cannabis or drank too much red wine, um, but mostly I didn't run away. I was tired and I realized after the memorial service this morning, I really got tired. I got in touch with the deep fatigue of carrying these three kids and the unborn baby and the boyfriend and the mother and the sisters. My sister tried to have my mother committed two weeks before she moved out of the house. Like that's the kind of level of stress I was navigating. Um, and I found this poem very helpful. So I'm reading it here. It's by John O'Donohue, for one who is exhausted. When the rhythm of the heart becomes hectic, time takes on the strain until it breaks. Then all the unattended stress falls in on the mind like an endless increasing weight. The light in the mind becomes dim. Things you could take in your stride before now become laborsome events of will. Weariness invades your spirit. Gravity begins falling inside you, dragging down every bone. The tide you never valued has gone out and you're marooned on unsure ground. Something within you has closed down and you cannot push yourself back to life. You've been forced to enter empty time. I love that sentence. You've been forced to enter empty time. The desire that drive you has relinquished. There's nothing else to do now but rest and patiently learn to receive the self you have forsaken in the race of days. At first, your thinking will darken and sadness take over like the listless weather. The flow of unwept tears will frighten you. You have traveled too fast over false ground. Now your soul has come to take you back. Take refuge in your senses. Open up to all the small miracles you rushed through. Become inclined to watch the way the rain, when it falls slow and free, the way of rain, when it falls slow and free. Imitate the habit of twilight, taking time to open the well of color that fostered the brightness of day. Draw alongside the silence of stone until its calmness can claim you. Be excessively gentle with yourself. Stay clear of those vexed in spirit, 
Learn to linger around someone of ease who feels they have all the time in the world. Gradually, you will return to yourself, having learned a new respect for your heart and the joy that dwells far within slow time. So this practice of falling into the abyss of a full encounter, I feel like I had opportunities, many opportunities this year. Um, I feel like in my life, so much knowing has tripped me up from connecting. You know, I, I kind of know for a living. Um, I'm a professor and I'm supposed to know. They all freak out. The students totally freak out if you act like you don't know. So sometimes it's better to just pretend you do know. Um, and I have this little piece I found in here in this journal from like 2010 or nine or something. It's like this kind of separate self. I, I wrote, birth forces us into individuation, and we spend our time striving for connection to get back to undifferentiated bliss of non-self, the merge, the boundless, limitless expanse of no edges. And that's what I find in the practice is the limitless expanse of no edges. And I find it with a lot of guidance along the way from Roshi. Even today in Doksan, you know, there were, there were I call them hints. And, you know, throughout this whole thing, I, I got another clue today. <laughs> got a, I got another, I got a big hint this time. Five years in, I got a hint about sitting bones. I'm like, darn, it took me a long time. I, I know I'm slow, but like that was really five years till you discover your sitting bones. It's like, okay. Um, I learned so much. I was here in 2002. I remember my very first day I was serving as uh, Roshi's assistant and uh, my first job was to make green tea. Who knew how hard making green tea could be? So that year was my year of like ego work, you know, like stripping it away. Like, oh, all of a sudden from professor to Inji. Inchi-san, rah-rah. So um, it, was, it was great fun. Uh, and then I, at some point, I started serving as Jisha. And um, I have so much in here about all the small little things that taught me all the ways I try to control the situation. And this, this, this early on somewhere from Roshi, I learned, you know, the, the rushing, the hurrying to get it right. I was so fixated on getting it right. Like, I'd sit there and I'd be like, the fans, when do the fans go on? When do the lights go on? When does the bell rose to close the door? It's just like, ah, I was like carrying all these like details to get it right. I have to get it right. I have to be the best Jisha in the world, you know, with no mistakes. Um, <laughs> so I learned so much about rushing and hurrying. Um, it's just that, that hurrying, that hurrying, the hurrying, and it ripples out. And I was hurrying last January on my way to Zoom session here 
uh, got up early. Okay, like I found the time. Florence is doing well. It was January. The kids were all situated. Everything was fine. I'm going to go to Zoom session and I'm rushing, 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 rushing. And um, the rushing was like really kind of not good for everybody around me. It's like so not helpful to me, not helpful to them. Like, rushing because I'm so important because I have all these things to get done because I all these people I have to take care of. Um, and I found this poem, it's called The Anatomy of Peace, formerly titled How to Live with My Body by John Rodell. My brain and heart divorced a decade ago over who was to blame about how big of a mess I've become. Eventually, they couldn't be in the same room with each other. Now my head and heart share custody of me. I stay with my brain during the week, and my heart gets me on weekends. They never speak to one another. Instead, they give me the same note to pass to each other every week. And their notes they send to one another always say the same thing. This is all your fault. On Sundays, my heart complains about how my head has let me down in the past. And on Wednesdays, my head lists all the times my heart has screwed things up for me in the future. They blame each other for the state of my life. There's a lot of yelling and crying. So lately, I've been spending a lot of time with my gut, who serves as my unofficial therapist. Most nights, I sneak out of the window in my rib cage and slide down my spine and collapse on my gut's plush leather chair that's always open for me. And I just sit, 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 sit until the sun comes up. Last evening, my gut asked me if I was having a hard time being caught between my heart and my head. I nodded. I said I didn't know if I could live with either of them anymore. My heart is always sad about something that happened yesterday, while my head is always worried about something that may happen tomorrow. I lamented. I lamented. My gut squeezed my hand. I just can't live with my mistakes of the past or my anxiety about the future, I sighed. My gut smiled and said, in that case, you should go stay with your lungs for a while. I was confused. The look on my face gave it away. If you're exhausted about your heart's obsession with the fixed past and your mind's focused on the uncertain future, your lungs are the perfect place for you. There's no yesterday in your lungs. There's no tomorrow there either. There's only now. There's only inhale. There's only exhale. There is only this moment. There's only breath. And in that breath, you can rest while your heart and head work their relationship out. This morning, while my brain was busy reading tea leaves and while my heart was staring at old photographs, I packed a little bag and walked to the door of my lungs. Before I could even knock, she opened the door with a smile. And as a gust of air embraced me, she said, what took you so long? <laughs> I have this journey um, through the years here. Um, do I have a little time or no? Yeah, um, I have some a little humor. Um, 
there's funny things that happen too. This was from my first Rohatsu session at Daigosatsu Zendo. It's like a 10 day deal where you hardly sleep. Um, and so it was day five, uh, eating orange squash soup with chopsticks, tasty soup, big chunks, full of bright orange color and succulently melted flavors. Then thinking about eating soup with chopsticks, then wondering what I look like eating soup with chopsticks. Next instant, entire soup bowl on the floor, upside down, under table. And then I entered, um, I entered this phase, I don't know how long it lasted, but it seemed like forever, of a kind of my, I called it uh, Dharma dilettante. Like, I have always kind of struggled with this, like, I don't want to read a bunch of history. I don't want to learn all these stories and these verses and these patriarchal ancestors. And I'm like, oh, I just want to kind of sit and have a good time. You know, like, I like coming here and doing nothing. That's my best part about why I come here, right? To do nothing. I finally found something I'm good at. But I was very like, tortured by this 17-year-old. You may remember Jikyo or um, Roshi. There was this 17-year-old who wrote to you and you read the letter out loud. He was incarcerated. Um, and he was so eager for the Dharma. And I felt so uneager and taking it all for granted and just come here. And so I would tell Roshi, I don't have any hunger. I don't have any drive. I just want to come and sit. And I would tell Edo Roshi, you know, I don't know what I'm doing here. And he said, oh, just go back and sit. Um, so here I am all this time later. Um, I, and I, I wrote, how much more confused I am than, I'm much more confused than ever. What am I doing here? What does it mean to give my life to the Buddha? How do I plug into the universe? Struggling, struggling, struggling. As I said to Roshi last night, I reject enlightenment. Oh dear, why am I here? But I, I did say I was engaging in enlightenment, leaving here lighter than I arrived. Perhaps that's all I really want, to walk lightly on this earth with steps of love and mindfulness. I don't know about anything outside that, but perhaps there is no outside, just something called outside. Finally, tying it together with um, facing death, and this challenging year, this is, who knows what year this was. I wrote, hmm, 2006. When people ask me, how are you? And I think, I think of all the external circumstances wrong in my life. I blame the circumstances and hold my life in their motion. Sitting asks, invites me to find that still point within and center. From that center, the swirl still unfolds, but the center can hold. Practicing finding that spot. I need great doubt, great determination, 
From these emerge great faith. Caught up at DBZ in 2019, I went to a forest bathing um, weekend. Um, first morning back from forest bathing or giving the forest a bath, as Florence said. The geese were howling and honking at each other with such vociferousness, it made me laugh to think that's how I sound. So caught up in my part of the pond, my food, my comfort, my peace, peace, my. And then quoting from Saul Bellow here from Henderson the Rain King, it's love that makes reality reality. The opposite makes the opposite. I'm going to read one death poem and then a, something from Maureen Stewart. And then I promise to let you out of here. So um, I guess there's a tradition of death poems and Zen masters on their deathbeds would write them. And I was struck by this one, Kozan, Ichikyo, who died in 1360. Florence died, um, she really, like I said, she wasn't into hospice. She was like, kind of like not really doing it. Like the same time she was on the phone with this creative oncologist in Seattle, Washington, after she passed, they found a $500 charge on her credit card. She was consulting with them. She was like, I'm not going, silently out of this world you know i'm like i don't want to die she kept saying i don't want to die i'm not ready to die the night before she died uh she was hard for her to eat but she was making herself eat so she made herself eat dinner and had a lot of protein in it and she promptly threw up and she called me in and she called her sister in who was up there helping uh for six weeks um and she said i've decided um i'm not going to eat anymore i'm not going to make myself eat i'm um I'm entering hospice. <laughs> I was like, well, I thought they'd been here for a couple of weeks, but um, I'm really I'm entering hospice, and um, I I'm ready to make my great spiritual journey. I just hope that something big, a big event, takes me. I don't want to linger. The hospice nurse had told me after she said this. The hospice nurse said, "Oh yes, maybe weeks, maybe months. Like this is." She's very strong, her vitals are very strong, and this is, and I'm like, oh my God, you know, um, how long can this suffering go on? Um, the next day, my mom was um, scheduled to move into this fabulous independent living center that I found her. Um, and uh, at the same time that the movers texted me to bring my mom to the new place and have them unpack her stuff, Florence had her big event. And that was like at 1.30 in the afternoon and by 7.22, she had taken her last breath. 
Empty-handed, I entered the world. Barefoot, I leave it. My coming, my going. Two simple happenings that got entangled. And to end, I leave you with um, Maureen Stewart. In Buddhism, we speak about the two truths, relative truth and absolute truth. All words, all beliefs belong to relative truth. All the things that you've read and studied and pondered may be true from a particular point of view at a certain time, but no more than that. Everything changes. Nothing lasts forever. Not even these things that we may think are so true. A dogmatic attitude about these matters, about one's beliefs and opinions, is against the true nature of things. It doesn't fit. Sitting on the cushion, we understand this. We come to understand these changes. We're experiencing the subtle changes in our attitude, in our body and its condition, in the way we taste our food, in the way our feet feel the floor, in the way we hear everything. Everything changes. This moment is what we have, nothing else. That's it. So open up to it more and more. No intolerant and self-righteous attitudes, please. Just find out for yourselves in a calm and reasonable way what this wonderful practice is about. Let us accept and work with whatever our present condition has brought us. And in doing this, even a hard life can become a joyful one. Sitting on the cushion, we're tuning into the first principle of the universe, sensing what an amazing and marvelous opportunity this life as a human being is. This has been a Zen Study Society podcast. If you found it to be of interest, please consider making a donation by visiting zenstudies.org donate. Thank you for listening.